Okay. We are on. <laughs> Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> Welcome to The Story Goes, today's episode, Salaha. I'm Salaha. I am a Pakistani Muslim American woman living in Seattle, um, originally from the Bay Area and currently here in Seattle with my wonderful husband and my two twins who are my twins who are currently seven <laughs> years old. I was going to say two twins. I have two so twins. luck. Salaha has only one set of twins, and I've been lucky enough to call her a friend for the last several years. She was one of the first people I thought of when creating this show, and when I asked her what she wanted to share, I wasn't surprised by her answer. Today we're going to talk about my journey to unlocking my mental toughness and where it got me to today. What does mental toughness mean? For me, I would really sum it up in resilience and the ability to push through as well as navigating ambiguous circumstances. I think oftentimes we're at so many crossroads in life. And I think just being a woman in my thirties, I've seen a lot of course, but I think in the past 10 to 15 years, I've experienced a lot just personally and mental toughness is really the piece that's helped me navigate a lot of those crossroads. And I feel like it's really beginning to shape me into who I am today. And so it's just something that really excites me. Salaha comes from a close and loving family. Her parents, first-generation immigrants, leaned into their mental toughness when navigating what it meant to be in the U.S. and the ambiguity that came with that. The environment she was brought up in was supportive, fairly conservative, and full. It set her up well, but leaving her hometown and moving to Seattle 25 years into her life was still a significant change. I grew up in a really tight-knit household, um you know, a really strong community that I was raised with. Some of my best friends now are my best friends from childhood. And yeah, it's it's been a journey. I, I truly think I didn't know any differently until I actually moved to Seattle and I had a lot of experiences of like, oh, things things are different for other households or families. And, you know, you see American television and it's, you know, always so far from what you feel reality is as well. So for us, you know, it was really... I would say I didn't know it then, and I can see it now as a parent, that my parents were really just trying to navigate this life for us. They were also, you know, figuring out the American educational school system while, you know, we were trying to figure it out in parallel with them. And so, you know, for them, it was helping us figure out boundaries or having them set boundaries in terms of like what they would allow, what they wouldn't allow, whether it was sleepovers or, you know, hanging out with friends and, you know, whether it was at school or at the mall and on the weekends. And so a lot of it was my parents you know, working really hard to instill that culture and religion that they brought from back home, but still seeing to what extent can I have my children and us assimilate into this culture that we're trying to now navigate because this is our new home and this is our permanent home. From that closeness comes safety and routine. When it was eventually time to leave home, some big feelings naturally came with it. I moved out for a couple of years of college Um, that was a bit of a struggle, but my parents, um, came around to it and were willing. And then this move was daunting for my, for my parents in particular, my mom, because I'm leaving 
the state. And I think, you know, grow up in an environment where my parents knew where I was all the time. Like this is a very big move. And so, you know, for me, I really brought it back to my parents for the career opportunity. You know, I went to a good school, I studied and I'm looking for these opportunities to continue building my career and really saw that as a stepping stone. So, you know, I think there was a couple of jokes around the family, like she's not married yet and she's moving up to Seattle. <laughs> so just the concerns <laughs> there around her letting her move up while she's single. Um, but overall, you know, my parents were pretty supportive. It wasn't um, too much of a push or pull, you know, at the end of the day, I think they definitely saw the opportunity you know, prior to my move, my sister took a really cool opportunity to move to Pakistan. And she was there for a couple of years to um, teach at an American school. And so I think for them, they saw her do that transition and she was fine. And of course, that was a big decision. And so I think leading into this, the initial plan was it was going to be for a year. And it's like, oh, it's a year, you know, we'll go, she'll come back and forth, we'll visit. Um, little did we know that I was going to be here for a while. Before her move to the Pacific Northwest, Salaha was working for Google in the Bay Area. She was part of their recruiting team. And as someone who consistently wonders what could be next, an opportunity eventually came calling. I was talking to one of my coworkers and she's like, hey, you know, I'm taking this really cool opportunity to move to Facebook Seattle. You should consider it. And I said, hey, you're crazy. I'm never going to move to Seattle. But I think in that conversation, you know, it was at least exploring the opportunity, learning a little bit more what it was about. And the more I learned about the people in the company, um, it sounded really great. It was an opportunity to join Facebook Seattle as a technical sourcer. And um, it seemed like a really great opportunity to build and scale the company um, and the site at that time. And so I said, hey, you know, what's great about this is I'm kind of in this middle space where I can take the one-year contract. And if it works well, you know, we can consider what's next. And if not, I can always come back to the Bay Area. She pursued the position, got it, and moved up to Seattle shortly after. As she talked about her experiences to date, it felt like the ability to be resilient, tough, and push through was there. But she says that wasn't always the case. Yeah, I'll share a little bit about my experience as just being a Pakistani Muslim woman that was being raised in the Bay Area by first-generation um, um, immigrants. I would say, historically, and this is just me speaking from my experience, very much raised as like a follower versus a leader. And I think for me, you know, as my personality developed, it was very much focused on like, how can I fill gaps or, you know, really kind of transitioning in some of these people pleasing tendencies, which once again, is very much my experience as I was raised. And so I think for me to try things and set myself apart, it was always a bit challenging because I really kind of followed the norm of this is the path and this is where it should be, which is why I do think the step to moving to Seattle was a bit of a big shift. But where we kind of found that middle ground was it was a contract. So it's like, okay, we'll try to stop for a year and then come back. Like we have a way to kind of navigate back to that regular path. When she did settle into her new normal, working for another large tech company and navigating her way around town, she was surprised at just how different things were. It was a lot more of a culture shock for me than I anticipated. So another piece to just being raised in like a fairly conservative household is, you know, we ate halal and um, we didn't drink alcohol as well. And so even that stayed through throughout college, you know, I found myself navigating to friends of like similar backgrounds because that was the environment that I was raised in. So in terms of exposure to, you know, a lot of non, in full transparency, a lot of non-Pakistanis, non-Muslims, I didn't have that much, you know, apart from study groups and things like that. You know, a lot of my close friends were non-Pakistani, non-Muslim growing up. By the time it got to like you know, the 20s, it was still very much that um, conservative um, 
household background that I was raised in. And so coming to Seattle was an awesome company, awesome environment, really great team. But there were some folks that were really surprised that I never had a drink before. It was a bit of a shock. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. And so I think I was really like finding myself in environments where there was a bit of isolation because, you know, um, trying and trying to get to know people. A lot of the default was let's go to a happy hour. And, you know, for someone who was raised in this conservative environment, I'm not used to going to bars, even if I don't drink, you know, it's just an environment that I usually find myself in. Um, You know, I'm not the type to be like, yeah, let's drink some beers on Friday at 4pm to end the week. Like, it's just, you know, that's not where I find community or that's not where I find engagement. For me, it was really tough to navigate that. It was really tough to find normalcy in that. Um, And I think, you know, back in... 2012, the tech market, um, we've done a lot better on like the DEIB front, but it was, you know, a very sort of different environment um, where there was drinking, which is, you know, essentially what I walked into. And so I think with that, it was really tough for me to navigate. I think there was a season of a lot of change where when, you know, I moved to Seattle, um, not really knowing anyone, I'm navigating how to make connections with folks in the office. You know, it's like the month of Ramadan and I'm fasting and I'm looking for conference rooms to pray in and, you know, telling folks like, I'm probably not going to go to grab like a bite to eat because I'm fasting right now. So I think for me, it was really tough and like that isolation and trying to figure out how to bridge the gap with my colleagues. As she watched relationships forming all around her via happy hours and office beers, Salah felt like she might be left behind. These types of events weren't going to stop. This was a pivotal moment. It was time to take control. I think this is one of kind of like the proud moments and like the shifting moments of my career because I really got to this point where this had been happening for a few months and they're not going to stop, right? Like we're going to, like I'm going to have to figure out a way to like navigate this and assimilate to a certain extent. So I kind of came to a point in my career where I was like, hey, look, Salah, if you don't figure this out, you're going to struggle. You're going to mm-hmm. have to figure out how to navigate this situation. So I did a couple of things. Um, first and foremost, I reached out to a couple of ERGs, that employee resource groups that were based in um, the Bay Area that I was like affiliated with. And so I started um, an interfaith group at Facebook Seattle, uh, which is a really cool opportunity to be able to just create a space for folks of all like religions, not just, you know, a specific one. And then secondly, I found opportunities to connect with colleagues outside of happy hours. I was like, hey, let's go walk and get a coffee or hey, let's grab lunch together. So finding common interests outside of drinking, I was able to really help bridge the gap and these sort of things started to lead me to gain confidence in my ability to assimilate and to be able to find ways to bridge that gap. She'd done it. She found ways to connect with her team and stakeholders that didn't put her in uncomfortable places. But that doesn't mean she didn't, at times, still struggle with being different. A Pakistani Muslim woman in tech and mother checks off many boxes on the othered list. I think at different parts of my career, I felt othered in any and all of those categories. But I do think that's where it's so important to kind of claim your mark in terms of like, this is who I am and this is what I stand up for and these are my values and this is how I'm still going to operate in my role successfully regardless of this. These aren't necessarily going to be factors that are going to stop me from succeeding. But we as a company, we as an organization are going to figure out how to create an inclusive environment through these things, like getting to know others for who they are. This is all 
to me, super tough (laughs) mentally, right? So we were talking about unlocking mental toughness. And I wonder, how did you go from those people-pleasing tendencies, you know, filling gaps to creating an interfaith group and thinking, I got to be true to me? Um, You know, what was the transition for you into this space of, of being more bold? I think there's like a certain part of just taking responsibility for circumstances. And I would say for this in particular, like I wasn't waiting for someone to come save me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to save me. Things are not happening to me. They're happening for me. And I think the advantage I'll say I had that, you know, many others may not have being the first of is I knew that there was already, you know, a ton of employee resource groups at Facebook headquarters. And so I knew I could leverage those organizations, those groups, and those folks to help me really think about how I can establish that sort of presence here at Facebook Seattle. And so I do think that that had a lot to do with my ability to like be able to move the needle, but I do think some of it was really just me taking ownership of my circumstances. Armed with these resources and the budding feeling of mental toughness, she thrived. Navigating her new role in a once small satellite office This was her second job in big tech, and the identity that came from the work she was doing and who it was for really started to form. She wanted to build spaces where others could also do their best work. It actually led me to my passion into DEIB work in tech. And so I think really what validated it was partially, you know, my my boss's support. She was such a huge advocate of like creating an inclusive environment and really, you know, encouraged me to continue focusing on the space if it's something that I'm passionate about. And so I think through me finding my own space within this environment, um, I really focused on how can I continue to do the same for others? And so one of my favorite phrases that a hiring manager actually once shared with me is don't bring folks into a burning building. And this is like oftentimes referring to candidates. And so For me, being in the recruiting space, it was, you know, first and foremost, let's create that sort of an inclusive environment. Then I can actually share stories with candidates about our environment. And I can actually make folks feel comfortable about coming into this environment and continue spreading that diversity across. So you're still there. You're living your life. I mean, is that how the story goes for this one? Yeah, it's over. It's done. (laughs) Just kidding. Thanks for listening. Salaha married, had twins, and wondered what else was out there. She ultimately left Facebook to pursue a similar build opportunity at the Seattle location for Airbnb. The site was small, scrappy, and ready to scale. A couple of startups later, she realized that her favorite place is in a state of building while keeping inclusivity top of mind. But I've skipped some steps. Why all the transitions? So... What I'll share is in this time and process and place, if you're in recruiting, you know, it's been a struggle. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that I went through that was pretty tough and just honestly, these past three to four years is I've been through three layoffs and I always see, you know, silver lining and all of these happening. Um, it's not necessarily the initial thought when it happens for the first time, but you know, for better or worse, I'm conditioned at this point to know. <laughs> so I would say, you know, yeah, it's, it's been a tough time for, for anyone in the recruiting space. And quite frankly, like folks outside of recruiting, so many folks have been impacted. Three layoffs in almost as many years would shake anyone to their core. Sadly, 
In our post-pandemic reality, these reductions in the workforce are still very much the norm. How does one stay mentally tough when juggling so many life events at once? Is that even possible? Honestly, my reaction to every single layoff has been very different. And so I would say the first layoff I went through, I cried because it was the first layoff. You know, I was working with a really great team, a really great company. Um, I knew they were coming, but to the extent that they happened, I think is really the shock that was there. And it was, you know, the first time after a while, I was really enjoying what I was doing. So I think that was really tough for me. Um, And so I was lucky at that point to actually like the job market was, you know, there were still opportunities there. So it was great to see that. And I was able to actually land it back at the same company three months later. So that's a, another story for another day. But that was, you know, a really great opportunity to to kind of go back to what I loved. And then the second layoff actually took me by surprise. And so I, I don't, I didn't cry, but I was definitely in shock. Because <laughs> I think just coming to that company was such a big decision, right? I think... Yeah. For me, I was really intentional about leaving my last company in terms of what I wanted next. And so I think to be impacted so quickly um, was tough. And I was also really enjoying my time there. And so I think for me, you know, the second time around, I'm just like, what is happening? I think once again, I was really lucky because I was able to land something really quickly um, without being super active. And so really just grateful for that. But I, I do remember the second time around, like, it took a hit on me. Like I think from quite, you know, in full transparency from like an ego standpoint, I I think it was really tough for me, a tough pill to swallow. Um, And I struggled because honestly, I've, I've defined a lot of myself by my career. And there was a lot of realizations that happened in that second layoff that like, wow, I've given a lot to my career. And for this to happen to me two times in a row, what's, what's happening. And then the third time happened and the third time around, okay, not super surprised. Um, Yeah, this is just, yeah, at this point it feels like another day. Just just clockwork at this point. Yeah, (laughs) seriously. Salha learned so much from her last role. And even though the third layoff was disappointing, she had no regrets about the work she did and the people she interacted with. But here we are. So now what? It was time for some reflection. Salah, hold up. You need to not jump to the next thing now. You have been through this three times. This is probably a sign that you should take the time off, which I also consider to be a huge privilege because I knew several folks who were not in the same boat. But I said, if I can, I need to take the time to just reset, redefine like the value of my career for myself and really rethink my priorities and what I want to do next. And so I would say for the positive, the third layoff impacted me the most. Even with this focus on self and resolve to slow down, there were challenges in this newfound state of unemployment that aren't often spoken about. This one makes me a little emotional because like, it was so tough. Like just, we as a society don't value motherhood as much. And I think I was scared to like lean into it 100%. And so I was scared to lean into motherhood. I also, I have driven so much of my value through my career that there was that space and ambiguity. So I think honestly, the first three months, I just had to be like, Salah, like stop looking for a job. I just, 
needed to be like, take this time. It's intentional. And honestly, I was super grateful because once again, like the job market wasn't great, but there were so many folks that were trying to reach out and connect me into that. I'm like so grateful. And I intentionally had to just tell folks that came hey, actually taking an intentional time, intentional break. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in society and in this environment, in this culture, we as women and as moms are expected to show up 100% to everything, which quite frankly is not possible. It's just not fully possible. And so I forced myself to sit through the discomfort of these few months and come out of it because I really want the next experience of work or whatever my career looks like to be different. I could not continue in this cycle. With a keen awareness of this phase of life with her kids closing, Salaha leaned into the discomfort, knowing there had to be reward on the other side. The first three months were tough, but I personally felt I was flourishing after that. My anxiety was better. My stress levels were better. I was slowing down to do things. I was slowing down to spend time with my kids. This time is not going to come back. I'm fully aware of that, but I actually took the opportunity to be more present. I needed to get to that place before I went to my next opportunity to remind myself what my priority is. Bearing the burden of motherhood is a narrative Salaha says many women have carried because of the hurdles of being everything to everyone. At this stage, she has transitioned from feeling like it is a burden to embracing the privilege. She's finally letting herself lean into being unapologetically a mom. But she couldn't, nor would she want to, do this alone. Is there an an external sort of representation of mental toughness for you when you think about, you know, that is tough or that person is the ideal or the the goal. Is that something that you think about or that helps you? I would say I'm a huge advocate of like, I have worked fully hard to get myself to where I am today. But I also believe that I would not be here if it weren't for my husband. I've seen a lot through his eyes. So... I know it's tough for him too. I know how tough it is just like running a business. And, you know, I know he tries his best, but I know he's navigated mental toughness a lot to just be able to navigate his, his sense of like ambiguity or direction. So I owe a lot to him for that. He's made me better for sure. Mental toughness is like a muscle. Use it or lose it. But is that easier said than done? How does someone maintain it? What are ways in which Salaha continues to stay in this mindset of flourishing? I've shifted the narrative of me feeling selfish, taking time for myself. I am a full, I'm a, I fully believe that it's important to prioritize yourself so you can be there for others. So I 100% try to do that now without guilt. I will say it's definitely a work in progress, but, you know, taking the time I need for me. Like whatever those things are, whether it's I need to work out or go on a long walk, I make sure that I think of self because I know that if I don't think of self and if I don't take care of myself, I cannot take care of my family and I cannot take care of my other responsibilities. So in terms of continuing to build that sort of mental toughness, it's reminding myself of prioritizing self and it's, you know, continuing to just be kind to myself through all of it taking the pressure off. 
I asked Salaha how her faith plays into her ability to move through the world with resilience and hope. I think with everything I've navigated, really my one anchor has been my faith in, in God. And so I would say in that sense, a really clear example here is, you know, I was interviewing with companies um, in this um, just a few months ago and really, you know, if there's a company I was really excited about, you know, whether it was praying for like letting it work out and my narrative have, has kind of changed from like letting a certain thing happen to like letting what, letting what is best for me happen. And so really focusing on that. So I'm very much a huge believer of if something doesn't happen, there's a reason for it instead of really just kind of sitting in it. And I think that's really kind of helped me like see what the situation is, process it, and then just push it to the side. Even in the, um, the last few months, as I'm kind of thinking through what's next, it's praying that whatever happens, happens for the best. Um, reminds me of that saying, it's like, let go, let God. And so really just kind of, doing what's in my control and like leaving the rest to my faith. No longer a gap filler, she drives her success, but not at the sacrifice of her family, her faith, or herself. Minimizing distractions and controlling what she sees was a critical step to her success. I think for me, tech has done great, but there's also so much access to tech that I, as I'm raising my kids, really want to be cognizant of like the level of access we give them to tech. And so I would say, you know, for me personally, in the last six months, I think another big change is I deactivated a lot of my social media. And for me, that was a really big step. And it was actually a realization when my husband and I were on vacation for our 10 year anniversary, we, um, you know, we were eating breakfast and I was on my phone and I saw something on social and it really kind of threw me off and it kind of messed up my mood. And then I was like thinking about it. And then in my head, I'm like, wow, I'm, you know, 12 hours away from my kids with my husband one-on-one and I'm letting a social media post dictate how I feel right now. That's not fair to him. That's not fair to me. That's not fair to my kids. So I, de- I deactivated it. And my husband's like, you could have just deleted it. I'm like, look, I know myself. Yeah. If I delete it, I'm going to be back on it two weeks later. So I um, I deactivated it. Thought it was going to be a couple of months. It's been six months. Yeah. And I have no plans of going back. And, you know, some of it's also, I don't want my kids, you know, seeing me on my phone and on Instagram and what is, you know, mom doing. It's just it's not how I choose to spend my free time with them. And I not discounting that it's not a great app. There's tons of value for it, but it's just not how I want to spend my time. Um, yeah. Was it easy to put it down or did you find yourself wanting to open, like reinstall the app? Absolutely. I wanted to reinstall it. Um, one of my friends like, well, how are you going to know what's going on? I was like, I don't care. <laughs> like, if, if someone wants, they can text me or I can text them. You know, if also, you know, in full vulner- vulnerability and transparency, and I know several of us are like this, I've always been the type to aspire for more. So whether it's in my career, it's very obvious that like, if I've, you know, been in one place, I want to aspire to be in the next position. Like I want to continue growing, but the same goes for like social media, right? Like, if I have this, I want this too. And like, I needed to shut that mindset off. I need to be content and enjoy what I have and be happy in the present. And that's a lot of what I was really focusing on, whether it was like actual time with my kids or like when I'm doing a task, I do not need to be rushing from one thing to another. The ambition and drive that helped her be successful in life 
wasn't serving her when it came to socials. So she adjusted for the new normal she was creating. As she reflects on her layoff journey, I wondered, what lesson will she carry with her? For me personally, it was putting my trust in God. I think I've had a tendency that's changed over time to want to control the narrative so much that I think after every single layoff, I had to let go of that control. And then secondly, I had to lock, as much as I love my career and as impassionate as I am about the work that I do, I had to not let it define me. And that's why I had to take that extended time off. I had to be comfortable with saying, I'm not working. Like, I don't have a career right now, right? So I needed to really just get comfortable in that to be able to myself feel that I provide value outside of my career, which kills me to say because I'm a mother of two wonderful children. So why would I feel that way? But I really needed to get to that point where I had to just be like, hey, this is me. I'm home with my kids and it's the best feeling ever. Leading into her identity as a mother of two, wife and coffee fiend, Salaha now leads a team and is expected to show up in this role with strategy, ambition and drive. These newly defined boundaries are tough to maintain in this kind of work environment, but not impossible. Here's how she's doing it. One is defining boundaries. You know, with that said, it's saying, you know, when I'm going to be available, when I'm going to be offline and not just defining boundaries, but at the secondary part that is very important is not feeling guilty about defining boundaries. So that's first and foremost. Second, it was really important for me to understand how my boss operates and my boss's priorities as well. And, you know, those were very much in line in terms of how we both operate and what our priorities are. And so I would say that's the second piece. And three, one of my favorite people who may or may not be in this room right now had said that our jobs are not rocket science. And I always have to remind myself of that and to remind my teams of that when thinking about the problems that we're looking to solve. And I have a fourth. Um, It's not taking myself so seriously. It's remarkable to think of the effort that goes into one of these steps, let alone four. Yet she is committed to them. The concept of feeling guilty for setting boundaries is universal for most, but rarely talked about. It's often the umbrella for many emotions. An example is, hey, I'm going to be offline for my kids' dentist appointments from 4 to 5 p.m. It's on the calendar. I will not be reachable. And then while my, I'm at my kids' appointments, I'm checking emails. I'm checking my Slack. I'm seeing if there's anything that's come up. And that's me not respecting my own boundaries. And is it guilt or is it many emotions that kept you glued to, to Slack, for example? I would say guilt is the biggest one. I mean, I would say it's not you know respecting myself. I would say... It's not having empathy for myself. It's not having kindness for myself. Yeah. Do you think that there are, I mean, I'm I'm sure that there are, but are there times where your boundaries have been put up because you need a minute and it's not in service of your children or your family? It's just, I, I need this time that you've also felt guilty about asking for in the past. There is. I would say, um, you know, always during the month of Ramadan, I've been really grateful to work for inclusive companies who have always understood that my schedule is going to be a little bit different for 30 days of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, hey, I'm probably going to be online two hours later, but I'll, I'll be online 
two hours later towards the end of the day. So I'm basically shifting my whole schedule by two hours. But then I always just feel that guilt to adjust it because it's not the norm, right? I, I don't think there's a lot of people that are doing this or necessarily there's also fear in asking for this. And so for me, you know, I'm able to ask, I'm able to kind of set up that boundary, but then there's still guilt in, related, in relation to actually doing that, doing the thing. Mm. Do you think that ever goes away fully? No, but I do think it can. I think if we normalize it, it can. And that's also why inclusion is so important in the workplace. Like it's so important to have folks with, you know, different ideas, different thoughts and, and be able to really just think about how we create that sort of environment within our workplaces. Hopefully inclusivity and equity will become more than just an aspiration. It will become the standard. If we can achieve that, the need for such toughness may lessen. For Salha, this mindset is the norm and it's why she's so good at what she does. Through her efforts, others can thrive. So I asked her, as I asked all my guests, pick an age or stage in your life. What gift would you give yourself? Okay. I don't have a stage, but I feel like this is applicable to just all stages of life. Be kind to yourself. We are just so hard on ourselves. For every chapter of my life, like it's still, you know, it still holds true today. I have to remind myself just be kind to yourself. You know, there's, you know, as a minority, there's so many hurdles. And so I think it's so important to acknowledge how far you've come. It's important to acknowledge all the work you've put in and it's okay to, to recognize and reward yourself. You should and do it more often. So be kind to yourself. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> I, I think I need to write that on a post-it and just stick it on my monitor because yeah, that is all ages. That is for sure. That is me yesterday <laughs> yeah. at the airport. Yeah. So, so uh, thank you for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. I think that this, this story is really a testament to this toughness that you always had and leveraged and came back to. And so I just, I really appreciate you sharing today. So thank you. Thank you. Of course. It's such a great conversation. I can't believe you made me cry, but (laughs) you are the best. So thanks for the platform. I mean, I, Thank you. (laughs) I don't want to make people cry, but thank you. Thanks for listening to The Story Goes, the podcast dedicated to highlighting the everyday and celebrating the moments that shape us. The theme music was composed by Daniel G. Harmon, who also edits and produces this thing. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on my show, reach out to me directly at Sophia at gifted that's g-i-f-t-d dot work thanks for listening